The first big surprise is that the sower throws out the seed just to see what will happen. Doesn't look very efficient to us, but it's God's way of doing things. The second surprise that comes, as you know the parable, when you step back from it, and we'll do that in a minute, it looks like three quarters of it is lost. And among the quarter that does take and does produce, it's a varied picture, some 30, some 60, some 100 times. In other words, the seed reveals the soils. Maybe that's a surprise too. It's when the seed hits the ground that you find out over time, and it doesn't happen immediately, over time the seed reveals the soils. Now I'm sure you're like me. When we hear the story, our instinctive reaction is to wonder what kind of soil are we? We worry that we might be the path. We're concerned that we might be the stony ground, the rocky ground. We, uh, we, we're also worried that we might get scorched or that we might turn out to be shallow. And in a sense, uh, those are important feelings for us. It reminds me of um, a previous British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, who used to have very quick one-liners with his friends, but also some of his enemies. And um, at one point he was listening to another colleague say what a marvellous character one of his fellow MPs was. Ah, said Churchill, deep down he's shallow. Nice line. Mostly, I think, when we think like this, what kind of soil are we? We want to think we're good soil. We're quick to calculate, to work out, are we 30 or are we 60 or are we 100 kind of people? In uh, Arabic, we lived in uh, Egypt for some years and in Cyprus before there. And we've spent a number of years since we came back to Scotland, traveling and visiting and supporting colleagues who work in the Middle East. In Egyptian Arabic, if you ask somebody, how are you? They'll say, mia, mia, 100, 100. Just like this, out of the story, I'm the best. I'm in a good place. Mia, mia. But maybe, just maybe, as we hear this story again, and it's a familiar one, you're like me. The truth is, you're all four soils every day. And the challenge is to grow more in receptiveness to listen more, to hear more, to welcome the seed and make space for it to find root and to grow. But thirdly, Jesus catches us at the end. In verse 9, he reveals what he thinks he's doing. He says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He's changed communication style. He's using a different way of trying to get through to people. He's telling a kind of sideways story to see who's listening out there, to see who's going to receive. Jesus is looking for people prepared to listen with people, he says, who have ears to hear. We are uh, the distracted generation, aren't we? Count the number of screens in the room a lot of the time with a heads down screen hooked 
here but not present generation. We're easily distracted. All of us have ears, but not many of us are hearing, it seems, or listening, or paying attention. And shockingly, it seems that Jesus' closest friends, they don't get it either yet. They know what he said, but they don't know what it means. So we'll come back in a few minutes to have another take after we hear what Jesus has to say about that. For now, we're going to sing together. And these songs have a theme of God's grace and God's generosity and God's goodness. This is the sower who puts out his seed all over the place to see who's listening, to see who will receive, to see who will respond. Let's stand as we sing together. Thank you very much, Helen. So Jesus switched communication styles to start the parables. He switched from the crowds with whom he's looking to see who's listening again. He switched now to his closest and he makes time for them to tune in, to understand, to find their questions Asked Because we've moved, if you like, from the parable of the sower to the calling to join Jesus in sowing. You know that uh, Gospels are written for those who don't know Jesus to explain who he is, what he's about, what matters to him, to persuade them to follow him. But they're also written for those who are already following. They are the manual, if you like, the instructions, how to follow with his priorities, how to follow his ways, how to follow his calling. And so here, we become involved with those first 12, thinking what it means to be sowing. And as you go through this series, keep that in the back of your mind. Jesus has been looking to see who's listening, who's hooked, who's paying attention. And now he's making time for his closest friends to tune in. Jesus doesn't explain many parables, you'll see that, on the journey. He just leaves them to go off in your head a few days later. But this one, he does, a couple of others as well. And this one he explains for particular reasons. His answer to his followers, his friends' questions, is fascinating. He says, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. And we scratch our heads a bit and think, well, but, but not, it seems, yet at least, to those who are outside. Why not? Surely Jesus would want to go public right from the beginning, wouldn't he? But Jesus quotes the second half of Isaiah chapter 6 and puts it rather bluntly. There's going to be lots of hearing, but not much really understanding. It's going to be a difficult gig for you. It puzzles us. Mark puts it very bluntly. Actually, Matthew and Luke soften it a bit. But our question remains, why doesn't Jesus make his good news openly available to everyone from the beginning? 
Well, there are two reasons. One, if he did, he would be accused and the gospel would end by the end of chapter 4, I think. Uh, he would be arrested. He would be crucified too soon. There's time before we get to the crown of thorns and the cross most beautifully expressed in the song we sang with the children. So he, he always talks about himself in a roundabout way. He talks about the Son of Man, not the Son of God. Though Mark began his gospel by saying, I'm going to tell you about the Son of God. But then he leaves it till almost the end. When the centurion looks up and says, whoa, this really was the Son of God. Got it, at last. But there's a whole world in between um, that if you go too quickly to the end, you'll miss. You'll never get there. So he hesitates, he holds back for the moment. But secondly, as we've already mentioned, Jesus is teaching his successors and through them us. What the apostles do in the New Testament is what the church should be doing in the 21st century. That's how the lines work if you follow them. Jesus is already shaping his body, the church about our calling and our vision and what we'll meet on the way. The Gospels introduce Jesus and the Gospels train his followers. And it's clear that the sower's ministry, the sower's priority is about sowing the seed of the word and seeing where the responses come. And our calling is to be fellow sowers with him. One of the small part-time roles that I've picked up since we uh, were full-time back in Scotland is to be the chaplain to the Scottish Bible Society. Uh, they'll be praying earnestly for the Scripture Union week that you have here, the Beach Mission, because there's lots of overlaps between them. And it's a, a great privilege to be involved in the Scottish Bible Society. Their old logo was like this, the, the sower. They changed it in recent years because they wanted to reflect the shift from only paper-based to electronic-based communication. They changed their communication style, a bit like Jesus. And they're working very hard to help Scottish people, most of whom have a Bible somewhere in the house, but almost none of whom will now read it, to make that next journey to read it, to listen, to hear for themselves. We share in the Father's longing for this seed to get it out there to find a home in the hearts and minds of all those around us, but also recognizing that there's a lot going on in our world and there's a lot competing for their attention. So how will it go? Well, that's what Jesus opens up. He tells the secret, if you like, to his friends. Of course, it's now an open secret because it's written and we can all read it for ourselves and we see the two tracks are running. The seed on the path, well, that will get taken away quickly, snatched away. This is nothing less, Jesus says, than the devil's work, stopping it settle in any way he can. Again, it's well documented in our screen-based culture that our attention spans are reducing. What's next is our defining question. Plenty for Satan to use to snatch the seed. You need to know how this goes, Jesus says. What about the seed on the stony ground? 
Well, it starts so well, doesn't it? Beautifully illustrated in the children's video. That early promise, it does seem to flourish. While it's calm, yes, but as soon as the frost bites or the rain stops, the wind howls, it withers. Yes, the sun shines um, and it burns it up too. Literally, they stumble in Jesus' words. They signed up for joy, not pressure. Certainly not persecution, which is the normal experience for most of our brothers and sisters globally, even now. And certainly throughout history. This has been refugee week this last week. So many of those people on the move globally are Christian believers. They are moving away from the persecution and the pressure that they've been experiencing it. It's easy to be impressed, Jesus is saying, by people who pray a prayer of commitment. We rejoice. We want to invest in them. And then we wait to see if the word will really take root and grow. I remember um, Helen and I used to lead um, Pathfinder camps for teenagers. Um, uh, Our greatest moments were in the Lake District, I think. And um, one particular week, um, we found ourselves being the leaders. We were the deputy leaders. (laughs) And the leader and his family got into trouble and they just had to go. There was no way for it. They had to go and look after each other. It was a real crisis. And suddenly there we were. Where we were was a school and they were digging trenches all around it to kind of rebuild extra bits. So that was a hurdle. Um, And then we found in the midst of all that and the shock of that and, and the help, now what do we do? But I'm the leader. I've got to do something. Um, all that experience, we heard from one of the leaders of the dormitory group um, that there was a revival going on in their dormitory. All the kids wanted to stay up all night. They wanted to ask questions all night long. (laughs) And it was exhausting. I mean, we were absolutely wiped out by um, nearly midnight. And in the end, you know what we did? Sounds shocking, but we said, you know what? Tell them to go to sleep. If it's a revival, it'll still be there in the morning, right? Well, may God forgive me, but that's what we did. And some of it was still there in the morning. Some of it was just hype. They needed time. They needed space. The seed falls also amongst the thorns. I found out about thorns and thistles and nettles yesterday, trying to find the balls when they went up the hill off the pitch. And uh, I can still have got the nice scratch to show it. And uh, they're everywhere and they're overwhelming. But this one is a bit more internal. This, again, looks really good at the beginning. Um, but there's plenty to worry about, isn't there? We had a colleague in the church in Edinburgh that we served in for a long time. Um, He was in the Navy, so the kids used to sit at the back and they would always have their stopwatches out. How long will it be before he says the famous words, when I was in the Navy? Well, he almost always did and he rarely disappointed. Um, But he he got me wrong at one point because he heard me say, why pray when you can worry? And he thought it was my saying. And, and, and as soon as I realized that, no, 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 it wasn't mine. It was the leader of a large mission agency, Overseas Mission Fellowship, actually, which works in uh, Central and uh, Southeast Asia. And it was he, he had it on his desk. So that everybody who came to meet him saw this sign. Why pray when you can worry? 
When you worry, you're in charge, right? When you pray, you put God in charge. It's something like that here. And people who are overwhelmed internally, and sometimes they may be seduced, the deceitfulness of wealth. If only I could get this. If only I could change that. Then everything would be right, wouldn't it? Well, maybe not. Self-sufficiency, control of my life, I did it my way. Those are still our headlines in our culture, aren't they? And all those treats and special things that I've wanted all along. Oh yes, indulge yourself. The seed among the thorns. And then, of course, the seed on the soil, the good soil. Those are the ones who hear the word, who accept it, and they produce this fabulous crop. It's variable, uh, fruitful, valuable. Three kinds of fruit seem to match the three kinds of failure in the parable. We're not told what the fruit is here, but later it's absolutely clear that it's the character that comes from following Jesus and the willingness to own up to belonging to him in our world and our culture. Those are the fruit that God is looking for. Four kinds of soil, four kinds of responses. But I wonder if now you can see at the beginning of this series why we chose this one to start with. It is the first one that Matthew, Mark and Luke record. It's the key to all the others, which is why Jesus explains it. It's as if he's saying to his friends and to us, get this and you'll understand how the sowing goes. You'll be able to live with the disappointments that come. But miss this and you'll just be constantly discouraged and disheartened. If you get it, you'll see how God is at work. You'll see how the gospel progresses. And by the way, it doesn't grow quickly most of the time. Like crops, they grow slowly. We're not talking instant discipleship here. Yet we are absolutely sure that nothing, but nothing, can prevent it growing when God's word, the seed, hits the soil on which he's been working. And we join him in that venture. So understanding this defining parable delivers us from false expectations and gives us real hope as we sow together.